Have you ever joined a CSA program? It stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and basically you sign up and pay at the beginning of the growing season, and that gives farmers money to work and to get their operations going. And then in return, through the growing season, you get a share of the harvest. It's a fantastic way to support local farmers and to get access to some of the freshest, tastiest produce around. I live on the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia, and I've belonged to various CSAs over the years. I always enjoy opening up the box to discover what veggies I'm going to have to work with for the week. But don't get me wrong, sometimes there are challenges. This year, it seemed to be potatoes. Holy moly, what potato dish am I going to make now? Beets were bountiful this year, too. But quite often, you will find treasures in the CSA box. And this year, I found kohlrabi. Do you know it? Kohlrabi is a strange, tubery, rooty vegetable. It can be quite a big, heavy, hard, knobby ball. And it often leaves me wondering, what the hell am I going to do with this? Kohlrabi slaw, which can be delicious, had been pretty much the outer edge of my creativity. Today, though... Among many other things, most of them happy, some of them sad, but all of them delicious, you are going to hear a much, much more interesting take on kohlrabi. And really, don't you just know you're listening to the right podcast when it starts with a story about kohlrabi? Of course you do. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to Chef Demoni. Thank you for joining me here. I'm Graham. This is my podcast about food, and I'm really happy that we are able to spend this time together. Kohlrabi, bit of a strange one, right? But I picked it as the opening to today's show because it ties so many of this episode's themes together. My guests are Hillary and Jack, partners in life, partners in business, and both very, very impressive chefs. Hillary Prince is a pastry chef, and her husband, Jack Chen, another chef, focuses on the savory side of things. Together, these two opened and ran and sadly for their enthusiastic customers like me, recently closed the wonderful restaurant Brassica here in Gibson's on the Sunshine Coast. We will get to Brassica and what made it so great, and we'll get to what this duo is up to now. But I mentioned the kohlrabi because it was the key ingredient in a dish that I absolutely loved at Hillary and Jack's restaurant. Chef Jack describes that dish on today's episode, but But more than the dish itself, you'll hear about the importance to these two of building connection, of building community, and the kohlrabi features prominently in that whole undertaking. You will hear about Hillary and Jack taking their staff to the farm to see a kohlrabi being hauled out of the dirt, and you'll hear about just how Brassica supported that farm and other local farms. Longtime listeners, you may remember hearing from Raquel Koloff of Huff Heritage Farm on episode 47, I think it was. If you haven't heard that episode, I think it's a great insight into regenerative farming practices and how to do agriculture right. Hillary and Jack worked with Raquel, got ingredients from her. They also worked with Hannah and Mel at Grounded Acres Farm, 
And they were the ones, incidentally, who supplied that delicious kohlrabi. Mushrooms in that same dish. All right, a little bit about this dish. It was a vegan carpaccio of kohlrabi, and my goodness, it was tasty. But the mushrooms in that dish came from Sarah at Walker Creek Farm, also on the Sunshine Coast. And the point I'm laboring to make here is that Hillary and Jack and Brassica connected the Sunshine Coast. They made food of this place and for this place and with other wonderful members of our community. In our talk today, you'll hear about that community and about how Brassica contributed to it. And you'll also hear these chefs' thoughts on a few other topics. Jack and I get into differences in appreciation for food, the importance of food between Europe, for example, and North America. In North America, Jack sees uh, many of us viewing food as an expense rather than a cultural thing. You'll hear that chocolate is not necessarily so interesting to Hillary as a pastry chef, and I found that interesting. You'll hear about natural wines and about the tension between art and profitability when running a restaurant. And you will hear a great story from Jack's time working in a kitchen in London, England. That was the inspiration for the title of today's episode. There is all of that and a lot more today. So let's adjourn to my living room of all places. And here's my talk with Hillary Prince and Jack Chen. Well, chef and chef, Hillary and Jack, thanks for joining me here. This is so nice. I was saying just before we started the official recording that this is the first sort of in-person interview I've done in, in what seems like a long time. And we're actually sitting around my living room in Gibson's, which is so cool. So thank you both for joining me. Thanks for being on Cheftimony. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Of course. Let's start with... Uh, let's start with a finish and some sad news to start that you have recently shuttered your beautiful and delicious Brassica restaurant in Gibson's just a short walk from where we're sitting now. But let's focus first on really the great memories that you created at Brassica. What was it that you wanted to give to the Sunshine Coast with that restaurant? I think primarily we just wanted to do something a little bit uh, different. And we we moved to the coast really with the intention of finding a closer, closer-knit community. And we really wanted to tie that community into the restaurant in as many ways as we could. So relationships with staff, with suppliers, and just kind of make that a focus yeah i mean i I think um you know our our goal was to not make food that's different but like make food that is still approachable but at the same time like you know healthier uh, supporting the local community supporting all all the great farmers we have here um you know we're coming from vancouver you miss the variety of food you miss you know being able to go out to Mm -hmm. eat late um and all that sort of stuff so it was definitely something like we didn't really think about when we first moved over here and then immediately started missing just you know, the, the different types of variety of food, right? Especially like, um, you know, being in Vancouver, like Asian food is in abundance and like I just love it. Um, so being able to, you know, make a restaurant that we would be proud to eat at and like be proud to bring our kids to. Uh, at the same time, just like Hill said, like tying the whole community together in a, you know, how did you find that with, I was going to ask you later, but I'll do it now, because um, we loved interacting with your front of house staff, and that is, I know both for kitchen and front of house, 
it's always an ongoing challenge to find staff, to keep staff. Everybody we interacted with seemed really happy to be there. So how did those relationships evolve? What Were, were you doing anything different with staff that you might uh, that might be different from what's going on in Vancouver? Is it the small town thing? What, what do you think the factors were there that at least made everybody seem so happy to be there? I um, mean, you go ahead. I mean, I think it's just uh, being able to connect them at, uh, to like what we're doing in the kitchen. It was a big one. You know, when we, right before we first opened our, our location at Davis Bay, we took um, all the front of the house staff to uh, Huff, Huff Farm and, you know, we got yes, to meet Raquel. Raquel. We got to, you know, meet all her lovely animals and just right away giving them that connection of where food comes from and also the the connections we form through food is a big one. Uh, I mean, I think Vancouver, North America just views food as an expense versus like a cultural thing. I mean, you just went to Italy, you can tell like how food brings everyone together. And then through that, through Raquel and uh, I think through Hannah and Mel at Grounded Acres, just being able to show them. I mean, like even a lot of them, like, um, you know, we were serving kurabi at the restaurant and I don't think a single server knew what a kurabi looked like until they went to the farm and, you know, Hannah dug a kurabi out of the ground and be like, this is what a kurabi looks like. And they were all sounded. And I think being able to understand, for them to understand, I guess, like how much work it is to farm and then from how that eventually becomes onto a plate to be served to a customer. Um, yeah, I think um, we both take a lot of pride in the food that we make, uh, the way that we make it and the relationships that we build um, through the restaurant. And we, I think from the beginning wanted that to be a part of all of our staff's experience in the restaurant, not just us in the kitchen and not just us as the like heads of the kitchen, but for the servers and the bartenders and the bussers for them all to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And it was really important that everybody like knows the food and, and can talk about it. And I think in doing that, you give people something to be proud of, which I think it really shone through at Brassica. Like we, we got really lucky with the staff that we found from the very beginning until we closed, like just hit the jackpot. Everybody was amazing. And we had a really awesome, strong team. But I think the feedback that we got from, from all of our staff, like especially after we announced our closure, was just how proud they were to work there, how proud they were to like talk about the food, to serve the food. So that was really cool. I think there's something to the small town thing here. Like the fact that you can go to... Raquel's farm, yeah. Huff, you know, it's, it's a five minute drive from where we're sitting right now Absolutely. and, and grounded acres, maybe five minutes beyond that. It's yeah. so nice. Not- and, uh, you know, I, I can now text Raquel and ask her about, you know, Same. do you have, yeah. yeah, pigs coming up yeah. or what's, you know, what's next on the menu and you just yeah. feel that much more connected to it. Exactly. I think, um, Jack and I are backgrounds working in Vancouver and other cities, this style of cooking and working with farms and, suppliers and stuff like that carries through to here but the difference on the sunshine coast is that like all of these farms are right here you know you don't have to drive out to surrey or wherever it is like there are neighbors and there are friends now and that's really really cool can you tell us about i'm just going to jump around in my questions here because i think that makes sense to do it and i want to go to the kohlrabi and that was i've i've picked one dish each to ask uh, to ask each of you about in more detail but 
Jack, I had the kohlrabi, I think this is right, as carpaccio. Yep. Right? And am I right that there was a celeriac version of that at some point too? Yeah. Okay. So please tell me about that dish. Maybe focus on the kohlrabi side because it was such an interesting preparation of it. And I'll be honest, I didn't pick it off the menu. Much as I love creative vegetarian cuisine, my, my, my eye always gets drawn further down the menu to the meat dishes. But my wife, B picked it. And I'm so glad she did because it was fantastic. So there you go. Please tell us about that dish. I mean, I think for myself, like I don't, I mean, I think uh, a lot of people like ask me how I come up with dishes. I just, I don't really have an answer. I think the the first step with this dish at least was, you know, we have uh, a lot of great farms that we work with and the process usually involves, you know, me reaching out to one of them and asking them what they have an abundance of or what they can't sell at the market. And then I make i guess force myself a challenge to come up with a dish i think this one in particular was the karabi was something that she had a very hard time selling in the markets and then um also i kind of wanted to force myself to constantly have uh, dietary dishes for people and that dish being a vegan dish was kind of the main goal from it and then uh, from that point on again just trying to a like uh, support a lot of these local farms that we have. So the two main components of that dish is like the mushrooms and the vegetables. So the mushrooms came from um, Sarah at uh, Walker Creek Farm, just down the road from Ground Acres. And then um, usually how I tie most dishes is that I look at like my my preserves or things I've made from, I guess waste you could say. Mm-hmm. So the two big ones was like um, you know we go through a lot of bread that Hillary makes at the restaurant and because we use a lot of bread we come up with a lot of trim so with the trim we try to come up with different ways to you know not not have waste and the big one we came out of that was um, like making miso with uh, the sourdough sourdough uh, buttons so um, you know this the dish is pretty much mushrooms karabi miso and koji and again koji is like one of those things that you know not many people are, are know what it is but at the same time, we met a lovely woman named Tanami in Vancouver. You know, she's like my mom, pretty much. Like okay. she, and she at home makes this beautiful product, Koji. And then we again try to support. At least I would love to support these little companies and try to, you know, tie everything together, pretty much. Absolutely. And sir, what is the name of her business? It's called Van Koji. So you can find her uh, in a lot of the farmers market down okay. in uh, Vancouver. But her main thing is she makes miso out of the koji she makes at. Uh, yeah. So wow. And when you pick it up, is it in? I've done a tiny bit of work with koji, and every time I've got it, it's in rice. Right? Is that? Yeah, it's pretty much like a molded inoculated rice. Inoculated yeah. rice. Okay. So there's many ways you can do it. Many types of grains that people have experimented with, but pretty much you're you're basing yourself off this sugar component and this um, unami taste. Yeah. So it's like a not like an easy way to make vegan food, but you know. Japanese cuisine in general, a lot of it is vegan because of the use of grains and such. And they, you know, it's a focus on fish, but a lot of vegetables for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't really tell you how I came up with this dish. <laughs> okay, but, well, <laughs> well in- I know I tasted it for the first time all together and it tasted good, so that's all that really matters. <laughs> that's all that matters. Well, I can, I can second that, absolutely. <laughs> and, and when you're making the miso out of the bread, sorry to linger on this, but 
I've got, I've got a lot of sourdough butt ants as well, so I may try this. Are you just packing it with the Koji inoculated rice? Yeah, so it's, it's a certain percentage. So it's literally it's just protein, uh, the rice, and then salt. And right. you combine it all, put it uh, into a most likely like a jar of some sort of the weight on top, and you just let it sit. The longer you let it sit, the darker the miso gets, yeah. the more pungent it gets. And then it's like one of those things you just make it with all the trim, put it in the corner. Check on it every now and again. Yeah. Forget about I guess it half a, a year later, you kind of find it and then you taste it and then you kind of go from there you go from there okay and hillary over to the sweet side i have noticed uh very happily that you have a uh love it seems to me for ganache and <laughs> one of the desserts that i really enjoyed at brasco was one of your takes on ganache where in most cases i see it it is a, a smaller piece of a dish whereas here the ganache was front and center and there were components of berries around it that completed the dessert and what it made me what here's what it reminded me of this is always a good thing where a chef can remind you of a childhood food memory and it reminded me of these big tubs of ice cream we used to get as a kid and it was mainly vanilla but there were these little tiny veins of intense chocolate running through it Fun. and of course uh, my sister and I would just chase those veins of chocolate, right? And try <laughs> to scoop vanilla. those out and accumulate those on a plate. And your ganache was this all of this intense chocolate, finally in an amount that I thought was ample. <laughs> so let's start there. Let's start with what is what is ganache? Why is it important to you if I'm right that it is? And then I have one more dessert that you've made that featured it that I want to ask you about. The funny thing is, I would not describe it as important to me. So I am oh, not... A chocolate lover not I'm not like not a chocolate lover actively it's just not my favorite thing and so the development of chocolate desserts has always been my least favorite I guess part of menu developing and I feel like the ganache for me is almost like a cheat um oh, so interesting it's always because I like Jack just mentioned like we try to have um desserts that are friendly for people with dietary restrictions and chocolate is s such a I think easy way to create a well-rounded dessert that doesn't feel like it's lacking if it doesn't have dairy if it doesn't have gluten if it doesn't have you know whatever it is eggs and so um yeah, you can still present this beautiful dish that people love without being scared by the fact that it's dairy-free, gluten-free, doesn't have it, you know what I mean? Whereas if you yeah. present a dessert that you have all these dietary restrictions on, people will often be like, mm, I don't know, that doesn't sound awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I do I do try to be creative and, and figure out how to make it fun and exciting, but I feel like it's also, for me, like, the easy one that I'm like, okay, well, that's the chocolate taken care of. Like now, now I, I can, can focus my energy right. on, on, on the fun stuff. Yeah. Okay. So interesting. Well, yeah. that one clearly resonated with me. Yeah. The other one, maybe this is a, a gateway to what you're more excited about making. It was the olive oil cake at yeah. the, the long table dinner that we had with one straw society in, in Roberts Creek. And I yeah. think I'm right that that had like an olive oil ganache. That had an on olive oil ganache. So. Yeah. I really like that one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That was, um, <laughs> That, yeah, that falls in a different category for okay. me. So that was like a white chocolate and olive oil ganache. That was based on like a plated dessert version that I did the, the summer before when we were operating as a pop-up in Davis Bay. And 
I was looking to incorporate local ingredients, I mean, locally sourced ingredients, I guess, so that olive oil came from Sunshine Coast olive oil here in Lower Gibsons. And yeah, it just, that was like a really fun way to to bring olive oil, which is kind of an untraditional dessert ingredient, like more strongly into the dessert. So the olive oil cake is pretty obvious, I guess, but... But the ganache was not... That's, but the ganache was not, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely the first time I've seen it, so... Yeah. Delicious. Let's talk a little bit about the drinks that you curated to go with things at Brassica. And I know I bumped into two wine uh, distributors, I guess, Brian and Ramona from Racine and then Matt from Sedimentary. And I think I'm right that you dealt with both companies. Okay. And of course, they pick, uh, for people who don't know, they, those two companies focus on I don't even know how to capture more natural producers of wine. So how did they come to be on your menu? What, what was important about their selections? Well, I think, I think when we first uh, opened Brassica, our, our focus was on the natural non-intervention wine. So um, similar to our food philosophy, you want to do as little as possible to an ingredient and make, make the ingredients shine. With In terms with um, Brian and Matt, I met both of them just through working in restaurants in Vancouver. Brian and Ramona were like our biggest supporters when we opened, um, not we, sorry, um, myself and Dave, we opened um, Farmers and Prentice. And uh, Brian and Ramona used to come eat like once a week and, you know, always, always bring us super tasty wine to try and all that sort of stuff. And then Matt, I think we just met him through... Again, for the love of wine and being able to taste wine on a regular basis. Um, one of the restaurants we used to run in Vancouver, Matt used to make a wine for us as well, like exclusive to the restaurant. Yeah. So I think, um, again, like working with people here, we gain these connections of people that have the love for food. And we always somehow reconnect with each other and you know, either through wine or food. I think a lot of people share the same passion as us in terms of what I guess what sort of food group or what sort of styles of food they want to support and we just go from there yeah and and those obviously are connections that continue as you move from project to project city to city definitely yeah what what was the wine and, and what was the restaurant can you tell us for for Matt, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Nick Nico and Lockenworth used to make um, a white and a red for us when uh, we used to run a restaurant called Coqui Seafood in Gastown. Okay, yep. So it was uh, you know again just cool doing little projects like that that can support both parties. And for consumers, it's fun because you're, you're exactly yeah. getting something that you can't get anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. finding something that is not elsewhere. Let's wrap up the the brassica portion of the discussion. I'm sad to see it closed. I'm, I'm sure you are too. Can you comment on that? Maybe tell us about the closure and point us to the future, and then we're going to come back into a few more food questions. I think the short story is just that we are looking to and hoping for finding like a a little bit of a better balance. So running a restaurant is very intense and it takes a lot of time and energy and Braska, we were, and still are incredibly proud of what we did there. It was our concept, but we didn't actually own the restaurant. And so there was a lot of um, decision-making that we didn't have control over. And just as a young family, we have two little kids and having 
somewhat recently moved over to the coast to try to find a little bit of a, a slower pace, I guess, for our lives after many years grinding in the industry. It just didn't feel ultimately like it was sustainable for us. Fair, fair enough. This was a question I was going to ask later, but the kids prompt it now. What is it like cooking for two young kids when both of the parents are chefs? I guess it's all you've ever known. But. It's probably pretty similar to cooking yeah. for two young kids. You're both not chefs. They're kids are kids no matter what. They're, they're picky and fussy and a bit ridiculous. I think we do try our best to feed them like very yeah, op- healthy open them to meals. different types of food and different types of spices and yeah they're i think they're maybe slightly above average in terms of not being too fussy but they are just kids yeah. <laughs> right. so they still like i always say with with friends who have kids when i make something that is almost pure white carbs i'm confident 100%, it's going to be popular 100 yeah. percent. yeah they you can put them into that category for sure <laughs> Can you comment a little bit about there's this line that is so hard to find the balance on, which is between profitability and art, if I can call it that. So have you I'm sure you spent some time thinking about that, not asking you to give away trade secrets. But can you comment on either struggles you've had with that question or things you think might work? I see so many. Sorry, I'm just going to ramble for a bit. and You'll get the sense of what my question is trying to be. You see so many chefs who have maybe like a three-star Michelin restaurant that's not profitable because mm-hmm. that's the art. And they're, the profitable one is the fried chicken joint or the speaking tour or something else. So is that something that you guys wrestle with and think about? And uh, I just love your comments on that topic. Yeah, I, I think, like I think, like you said earlier, when we look at what covid has done for many industries especially now with the food industry a lot of not negative things happened but like a lot of it 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 opened the box of a lot of practices done in restaurants that were unsustainable you know moving here from vancouver a lot of people complain about uh the affordability right and we as as a restaurant we wanted to pay a, a fair wage right that's that's a big one for a lot of people nowadays is that one of my one of my very first jobs in vancouver in a professional kitchen i think i was getting paid like 90 dollars an hour for for a full day of work right, right? 90 dollars an hour or a day that's not so bad <laughs> and you know like practices like that nowadays especially as an employer you're it's, it's you know it's it's not a, it's not a fair wage anymore right and so for us, like we being able to run a profitable business is a big one because without it being profitable, there is no business. So we had, we, I think we, that was a, one of the biggest struggles we had with Brassica, I think, was that being able to set up a system that requires being able to find good labor and also being able to run like a well-serviced restaurant that we were still profit is probably the hardest thing a restaurant could possibly do. Like, I mean, in, in my opinion, if a restaurant can stay afloat for the first kind of one to three years, uh, be able to break even, be able to pay for their, all their staff, be able to do what they want to do, to me, that's a successful restaurant. That's a right? win, yeah. I like. I read a lot about food. I like. Um, it's obviously my passion in life, and looking at what other restaurants are now doing with 
how they want to do service, how they want to be able to support their staff, either through benefits, through good pay, through work-life balance, to how they understand how hard it is to either keep staff or find well-trained staff. I think it's, it's the hardest thing for a lot of people to juggle. Um, you know, we're not a three mission star restaurant. We're not in Vancouver. We have a very hard time having professional cooks, I guess you would say, want to come work with us. We were very lucky that we had some great people that moved to Vancouver just to come work with us. But being able to find a sustainable balance, I guess you would say, through what kind of food we're preparing to what kind of service we want to provide people to a structure that's sustainable. Yeah, you have to get creative, I think. When you're cooking from scratch, which is what we do, we make everything ourselves, it's it's pretty easy to hit your food cost targets, but you have to balance that with labor, um, which right. is what's really expensive, and plus all the operating costs of running the restaurant. And so that it's a very tricky balance for sure. I remember learning about the importance of food cost when I was, you know, closer to the industry than I am now. And then I also remember having a discussion with a chef friend. She's been in the business for a long time about pasta, about fresh made pasta. And I thought, remember commenting to her, wow, what a great idea because your food cost is so low. And she said, yes, but think about the labor. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. there is always a balance to be struck. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is something that one of my goals with this podcast is to just get this information out there because I think that continues to be a challenge for consumers. They show up and don't fully understand at all. The Cook, yeah. The, so cooking is a trade, just like plumbing or being an electrician or working in construction. But it is the most undervalued trade by a long shot. I mean, I guess not everybody goes to school for all of those things, but say you go to trade school None of them are cheap, but if you come out working as a plumber or as an electrician, you're going to be making, I mean, I don't know how much they make, but a considerable but amount of money. Yeah. Whereas working as a cook, while we are like hoping to continue to push the industry to change, you're not making a lot of money. So it's, it's really hard. And the margins are so slim running a restaurant I think people just don't see the value in what's going on behind the scenes. They see the menu price and you have expectations that you should be able to eat a meal for a certain price, but without any thought to like the, the time and the effort and all of the, the little things that are taking money like right. away the from broken that business. Plates. <laughs> yeah. The broken plates, the broken wine glasses, like if you want to be able to pro provide your employees with benefits, like that's mm -hmm. huge, you know, but it's expensive. Um, a million little things, utilities, this, that, like broken dishwashers. It's crazy. But even a tiny little jump in price on a menu gets so much pushback. And so much attention. Yeah, yeah. so much attention. Yeah. I had a discussion with a, f a food trailer, I guess. It wasn't really a truck. It was a trailer and, and almost a permanent trailer, uh, but an operator on Haida Gwaii when we were there not too long ago. And to your comment, Hillary, about trades and being valued differently, he said he had just paid uh, an electrician to run power that he needed and, or needed to upgrade his power or something. And he said, not that he was begrudging the bill. He said, yeah. I don't think the guy was ripping me yeah. off at all, but it was like $1,600 or something to run this connection. He's like, do you know how much fried chicken I have to sell to cover this expense? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's jump to maybe a happier 
component of this industry, which is stories that might be funny, might be sad. Is there anything that stands out to you? Could be from your time at Braska, could be from earlier in your career. Um, <laughs> I just think that you know, chefs work these cra- and cooks work these crazy long days, and there's so much laughter that goes on through those days that I think people who are just customers of restaurants, as I am now. Uh, we don't get to hear about. So is there anything that stands out to you? Jack has a good one. <laughs> uh, I think just in general from, I guess, me starting as like, uh, like my first job was like when I was 15 in, in a kitchen and just going through the ranks and eventually kind of overseeing everything you see. I, I mean, I, I'm exactly like this too, but I, the like the OCD-ness of how a lot of chefs are. I've worked with a chef before that pretty much every single day before a service starts, he needs to play this one song really, really loud. And that's how he gets into service to other chefs that, you know, they're seasoning food and they're like, no, 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 not right there. Like literally like right, right there. And like, they <laughs> want you to put literally two grains of salt on this little one piece of unsalted you know, food. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure, I'm sure I'm the same. I think a lot of people probably that I've worked with, have noticed a lot of these tendencies as well. Um, I guess a lot of the stories I have are probably not the greatest <laughs> stories because it's kind of what the food industry was back then that I grew up with. And it's, again, it's not sustainable and it's not a culture that we a lot of people want to be in. When I was working in London, this kitchen I was working at, we had this dessert, this custard tart. So custard tart is like this traditional English dessert. It's like a, a deep, deep pie that's set with custard. Like most tarts or pies, it's always the the best the day of, right? So this kitchen I used to work in, we had to show up pretty much at like 6 o'clock every morning. And then by 12 o'clock, we would open for lunch. And then you needed to have everything ready. So one of the jobs that uh, the our pastry chef had at the time was that he first thing he would have to do when he gets in is get this custard tart going. So custard tart, uh, it's a very time-sensitive task to do or make. And, uh, you know, he's given about five or six hours to get it done. So I remember I was, like, on the hotline working and service had just started and uh, you just don't really think about it because you're just like such in the shit constantly that there's so much stuff going on that you kind of just worry about yourself and yeah. making sure you stay afloat and uh, everything around you is just like non-existent. So we start a service, you know, we, you know, London's London. So like the second you open, you're just busy, right? So I think we had like a, a bread call. So our chef like called for like pick up bread for two people or whatever. And uh, usually the pastry chef on the other side of the wall would respond like, yes, chef, or etc. He never said anything. So no we just kept on working. And then obviously the chef at the past started getting really mad, being like, uh, I forgot what his name was, but, you know, like, like Chris, like, where's my bread? A few minutes went by. So we just didn't really think anything of it. And then um, one of my, like, my friend at the time was working right beside me. He, like, went on the other side of the wall to see what was going on being like hey Chris where's this bread and uh, we went over there and uh, all that was there was the custard tart with a with a knife cut through it and clearly the custard tart had not set properly so Ooh. the custard started seeping out spreading everywhere and uh, that was it never, <laughs> never saw him again he, he, <laughs> he left his left. knife there he left he left his knife literally in the custard tart wow and never saw the guy again. 
and uh, to this day, I don't, I don't know what ha- happened to him. But it, I guess it just speaks to the the pressure, the you know, just everything yeah. about expectations this, and the demands, yeah. demands that, of this oh industry. Oh my goodness. That is, that's a great story because it's it's funny, but it's sad. It's, tra- it's, it's tragic. It's, it's hilarious, tra- but it's tragic. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, we're going to have to wrap up fairly soon, but here we are. We are at the very end of November, twenty twenty three, the last day of November that we're recording. What are you working on or working with now that's exciting you? It's a bit of a strange time or not a strange time of year but it's a quiet time of year Mm -hmm. in terms of things that are growing but anything either or both of you are making baking cooking that's exciting you these days ingredients wise yeah Um, or ingredients techniques i mean what you're planning to make i think there's lots of stuff like the being able to support a lot of these like producers are just making really interesting things in general you know with these relationships we gain through this restaurant I don't think we'll ever lose that. So the the great people that we met, you know, being able to say, for example, working with Hannah and Mel at Grounded Acres and, you know, we had a pretty re- good relationship going that she would grow certain vegetables for us and just for us. And she would be able to give us like certain plots of her, her beds just to grow for the restaurant. You know, we, one of the first trips we went on here was we went on a boat and met Leanne and Chris that uh, owned... Aqua Ocean Farms? Equa. Equa Ocean, Ocean Farms. Seaweed farms. Um, farming. Yeah, oh, so, so they own really a little piece cool. of land right from where we were in Secret Cove, and uh, they were doing sustainable seaweed farming, right? And then through them, we were able to form this relationship that pretty much the majority of the seaweed they grew went to the restaurant. And, you know, for us, being able to eat interesting food and make interesting food and especially feed our kids stuff that they're not familiar with, has always been the goal and I kind of just feel like I think the saddest part about us closing this restaurant is you know we're, we kind of broke the food chain of the Sunshine Coast right because a lot of people depended on us mm. for our support and for their own support of our business let's say like the 50 to 60 pounds of squash we were buying every single week for a certain dish now they would have to find a different outlet for that right and that's, right. that's a hard one for us um farm land on the coast is very minimal the food chain is not sustainable percentage of our farm agricultural land that's actually used for farming is very small meeting people like raquel is like you don't find sustainable practices like that and that is something that is probably the saddest part about cones in this restaurant because we lose that support that we want to, you know, tie this community together, I guess you would say. What What is in the immediate plans? Are you doing, I've seen references, I think, to some catering. Are you going to well, continue that for? I mean, the catering is kind of a here and there type thing. It's, sure. not, it's not necessarily a passion, but it's a fun thing to be able to do in the meantime. Um, definitely a short break, spending a little bit of time with our kids and yes. um, <laughs> planning forward to hopefully doing our own thing, making sure that we figure out ahead of time how to do it in a way that works for our family and works for the Sunshine Coast, you know, right space, right time. We don't want to rush into anything, but we want to, we definitely don't want to give up on like offering what we can give to the coast. Continue these relationships that we have formed and uh, being able to, 
you know, it's, I guess you don't really like see it until the very end of like, I guess, like what we actually did. And when you do look back at it now, like even like our last couple of weeks of us being open, like you really saw like the support um, was overwhelming, support. like yeah. really overwhelming in a beautiful way. We were kind of grinding for a long time and you don't really see the impact that you're having, I think, before you can take a step back. And we didn't do that until we had announced the closure and then... The, yeah, the support from the community was amazing, and I definitely, I definitely don't want to like give that up. I think we we definitely want to be able to give back to the community again. So, that's a great thought and a great way to end our discussion. Uh, because I'm so happy because it sounds like you aren't going anywhere from yeah. the Sunshine Coast. <laughs> we love the Sunshine Coast. We we're not going anywhere. <laughs> awesome. Well, Hillary and Jack, thank you so much for taking thank the so time. Much. Thanks thank for you. being with me. Thanks for thank having you. us here. I am really going to continue to miss Brassica, but I can't wait to see what these two do next. Hillary and Jack, thank you again for joining me. Thanks for taking the time. All right. Episode 68 is very nearly done. A few minutes or seconds to go. And then I am planning one more full episode to round out what has been a very long season five of the Chef Timoni podcast. And then I'll take a little break after that before returning with season six now that next episode that is going to take me a wee while to pull together but who knows maybe i will be back with a snack-sized episode or some such in the meantime and in that meantime please do stay in touch i love to hear from you so please reach out if you've got a question or a comment for the show a guest suggestion a topic idea I would love to hear from you. I would also love to hear from you via the review pages at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please take the time to leave a star rating and ideally a written review for Chef Timoni, which will help other people to discover the podcast. Ways to get in touch with me. You can find me on social media, mostly on Instagram, but I am at Chef Timoni on Instagram, Twitter or X, uh, Facebook and TikTok. On LinkedIn, find me under my name, Graham McLennan, and please connect with me there. I'd be happy to connect on LinkedIn. And you can always send me an email, and those go to graham at cheftimony.com. Okay, that is all for now, all for episode 68. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you again soon, right here on Cheftimony. Cheftimony.